what cemented my interest in her music and what carved a place in my heart for it was Running Up the Hill. Everything about the song. It is such a simple song in its composition, but it is so dense. It's so There's so many moving parts. It's it's such a enigma of a song, and I think I think she knew exactly what she was doing in um, every component of the song, from the music video to the lyrics mm-hmm. to the um, composition to the marketing. There's a reason why this is the first single of How to Love. to Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. I am Cecily Link, and this week we are going into the Hounds of Love era. We are starting with the album's first single and the first song from that album. I hope you have your running shoes ready because it's time to go running up that hill. It's you and Welcome, welcome everybody to another song episode. In fact, the first one of the fifth season of the show. I am so excited that, wow, I began doing this, planning out this project two years ago. And oh my goodness, we're now on the fifth album. Technically, I'm about halfway through at this point, And so it's like, whoa, oh my goodness. And oh boy, do I have a monster of a song here. I felt intimidated doing the Wuthering Heights episode, and that's about how I feel putting this all this together, because Running Up That Hill was such a huge hit, and it was one of, it's the only, as we'll get to talk about in this episode, this also was the only top 40 hit that Kate Bush has even had in the United States, which, you know, as you guys know, as you can tell from me, I'm an American. She's not really that huge here. She's not as big as she is probably where you guys are, you're listening right now. So... Running Up That Hill is a pretty big deal, and I think it might also be one of her most covered songs, now that I think of it. Anyway, when I recorded this, this was way back in April of 2019, and I got to talk with a young fan who, when he emailed me about a year ago when he discovered my show and he said he wanted to be on... Um, he said this was one of his favorites. You might remember in the third, in the last season, in the dreaming of uh, the There Goes a Tenor episode. Yes, it was There Goes a Tenor. You might remember that I talked with a young fan named Diego Ortega. Well, Diego is going to be my fan for talking about running up that hill because for him, running up that hill is like me, for me, used to be his absolute favorite Kate Bush song. And it still holds a lot of personal meaning for him, as it does for me, as we'll get to see as we're going through talking about the history of the song and the production and everything. So... 
Our fan for this week is Diego Ortega, and I was super excited to talk to him. This was also the very first episode I even recorded for this season. Like, this was one I knew. I was so happy to have this one in the can first. <laughs> so without further ado, here's my discussion of Running Up That Hill with Diego Ortega. Hey, Diego, it's Cecily from Strange Hi. Phenomena. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning to you. It's our 12.56. Oh, or, it's afternoon. Yeah, it's almost afternoon here. <laughs> it's, it's still, it's 9.56. So how are you? Tired, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm good. Plus, we're about to talk about Kate Bush, so, I mean, you, you can't yeah. go wrong. <laughs> so, running up that hill. Yeah, oh my, this is... I knew that this was going to be a monster of a song when I started doing the notes for this. And then the more I like dig into this song, I'm like, this is about how I felt when I was making notes for Wuthering Heights. <laughs> was that intense? That was intense. Even though I already knew a lot about the song, especially because I read the book. But this one... I'm going to have a real hard time keeping this like to under two hours on just this one song. Oh my there God. so much. How is it, it going to be under two hours? It can't be two, under, <laughs> under two hours. It's not just the lyrics, but I, I am going to, ladies and gentlemen, listening to this episode, I am going to be nerding about the production on this song because there is some yes. a really cool technique. In, great detail. Great yeah. attention to detail. And it's like, especially like with the drone, that wow, 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 hook, and the wow, 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 those those chords. Oh my god, I get to nerd about that song, so I'm just super excited. Oh my god! <laughs> I, I think the great thing about this song is that it's one of those songs that when it starts, you know um, immediately what it is, what you're in for. However. It doesn't need like a guitar um, riff or something to open it up to um, let you know what it is. And now for a musical interlude courtesy of Paul Tate. Paul Tate is a pianist, composer, and arranger who is also a huge Kate Bush fan. He sent me several piano improvs that he did over several of Kate Bush's songs. Here's his improv over Running Up That Hill, which you can find him on Spotify and Apple Music. kind of talking like back and forth um by email kind of like how 
what your first impressions of the song and everything. What is your history with this song? Because I think it's similar to mine, but I want to hear your thoughts first, and then I'll say mine. Yeah, so, I mean, I first discovered Kate Bush when I was eight, and I believe the song that I first discovered, it was on iPod Nano, one of the best gifts <laughs> in my whole entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, because I have my dad's catalog of music, of, of indie and alternative music, and it was um, Hounds of Love, and I was like, and I didn't really know how to take it in, so didn't really get into Kate Bush until um, I must have been, I w- was 15, and I mean, I've, I heard things about Kate Bush. I heard how she was kind of... Um, reclusive and I heard like the stereotypes and everything and I was like skeptical of getting to Kate Bush because of that but I must there's a point where I just took in Wuthering Heights and it stuck and what cemented my interest in her music and what carved a place in my heart for it was running up the hill mm-hmm. it was um everything about the song it's such a simple song in its composition, but it is so dense. It's so there's so many moving parts. It's it's such a enigma of a song, and I think um, I think she knew exactly what she was doing in um, every component of the song, from the music video to the lyrics mm-hmm. to the um, composition to the marketing. There's a reason why this is the first single of Hounds of Love, and I believe it's the first track, right? Yes, it's track number one. It is, I mean, it's. it starts with this inviting feeling that um, of the synth warming up. The um, It's almost like this fog. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, and I, I mean, I think why... I got into Kate Bush is because um, there was there there is something to find in her music that's so profound. There's, um, I mean, she made me feel her music made me feel okay to be myself. It was sophomore year. It, um, I mean, high school isn't easy for anyone. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and growing um, knowing that you don't. Um, get on in the typical groups, not like my high school had clicks, but um, not knowing um, exactly who you are, music from a person such as Kate Bush would be really helpful. It's very helpful. It's like, it's reaffirming that it's okay to be sensitive. It's okay to be weird. It's okay to retreat into your imagination and come back with something that, that people think is strange and odd and um, there was this is a strong song and this is the song is the reason why um, whenever I refer people to her music I start with this album every time it it's timeless it's aged well mm-hmm. and it, it just feels good for any season or any I, I don't know Well, like you, this was the song that made me want to seek more of her music. I remember 
hearing running up that hill a lot on flashback alternatives, which I haven't listened to in ages, and I know they're still around. But flashback alternatives, uh, it's an online radio station I found way back in late high school. So for me, I graduated in 2003. And so it was around that time that I got more into like, really like more obscure 80s music other than the top 40 stuff that I was always hearing on flashback nights on uh, terrestrial radio. And I would hear I knew of Kate Bush. But at that point, I couldn't stand her voice. I was just like, ah, and I would turn it down on flashback alternatives whenever her stuff came on, like, especially like love and anger would come up a lot. And I was just turn it down like, oh, my God, I can't stand her voice. But for some reason, like this song, I kept hearing it. And I realized, oh, my God, I love this song. I want to find more of her music. I mean, just I was also still at that time really heavy into Depeche Mode, and I still kind of am. And the beat of Who the, isn't? I know. And, like, like the beat like kind of reminded me a little bit of Depeche Mode, sort of. I know, I know. You all can, like, throw tomatoes at me, like, for disagreeing. But that was what I thought as a little, like, 20-year-old hearing this in 2005. Yeah. And it just it made me want to seek more of her music. And that's where I ended up getting the whole story because – at that time, in 2005, um, they were just talking about Ariel. I don't think even Ariel had been re- was even talked about or even like people were still speculating, oh, is she going to come out with something new finally after 12 years? But at this point, nobody knew anything about Ariel. And so I got the whole story. I guess it would have been that summer. And so I was like slowly getting into her music, like chuckling the first time I heard sat in your lap going oh my god what was that and going oh actually Wuthering Heights I really like this now and then running up that hill like I this was my top song for a very long time from Kate Bush because it was just for me it was that one song that made me want to get into more of her music because it's catchy but it's also very thoughtful and it's kind of like struck me in recent years as I've gotten older and that I've wanted to just understand more of people and where they're coming from. And I, in this song, I get this urgency from her. Like she's written about wanting to understand, like get a full human experience and understand other points of view. But I feel like this song, like it feels so urgent and it's probably because of those like tribal, like drums that were programmed on the Lynn drum machine. Like it is just insistent. Like she's like, I have to switch places with you. I have to understand where you're coming from because I just, I need to know what you are feeling. And it is just, I just, I could go on for hours about this song and just how, how like, and even just like, like it struck me today as I was like listening to this before we started talking that when I was first getting into this song, I didn't quite understand what she meant by running up that hill, be running up that road, be running up that hill, be running up that building. And now I think I get it. And for me, though, the hill and the road and the building are like obstacles to her, like being able to yeah. understand this person. And it's just it totally makes sense now. <laughs> And I know I rambled, but that's okay. That's why I have this podcast to ramble. And this is a great song to ramble about. Yes. I, I mean, you can't help, but, I can't help but ramble on and on about this. Um, it's interesting because as much as this reminds you of Depeche Mode, <laughs> this reminds me of, of um, The Smiths. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Um, because 
So, I grew up the longest. Um, I've been a Smiths and Morrissey fan um, since I was probably an infant. I'm not exaggerating. Um, there, um, the music has been part of my life um, since I was very young, and um, this reminds me of one. Um, how soon is now? Mm. I was reading something about um, because I really got back into that song recently, um, and how um, it was compared to um, "Stairway to Heaven." And it was um, criticized as the, 80, um, the "Stairway to Heaven" for the '80s, and I think that hmm. in composition and in mon- monumentality, that these songs have a lot of parallels. This, Running up that hill is very monumental. It's why it's so hard to dissect, even though it has this facade of everything is simple, it's everything's minimal, it's all laid out. You still have to dig through the dirt for the song. How soon is now is also an equally monstrous mm. song, and I mean it's more apparent because it's almost eight minutes. This is maybe what almost five or six. It's about five minutes. Not even five minutes. Um, Oh, um, and then another Smith song um, that this reminds me of is because of the high school connotations is um, there's a light that never goes out. Oh, and, I know that song. Uh, I only discovered that song freshman year of high school. Great song to listen to as a freshman. Um, you don't really know what love is and you, Everything is awkward, and you think love is just made of big gestures and statements like to die by your side and whatnot. And um, I think why this song is great for high schoolers is that it's, I don't know, it it feels like it's offering a lesson. It feels like it's offering a hand. Mm. And I must say, I must say, 2005, I did not know... (laughs) Anything about Kate Bush? Well, because I was what, five. Oh God, and you youngins! <laughs> I would I would have been listening to um, Gwen Stefani's "Love Angel Music Baby" or oh my the soundtrack "Serious Swords." Um, <laughs> takes me or back. Or Crow or Finger Eleven. That was my, and probably Elvis. That was um, my prominent music taste. Five. Age five or six. Um, but I'm glad I know about Ariel now. That is one of my favorite albums of all time. Next to this album. Okay. Those are my two favorites. Um, and I always, I'll always have a soft spot for the red shoots. And I'm not apologetic about anything. Um, even though that's, that seems to be... Um, Oh, album was down upon. It's a music business cliche that the second album is the difficult one. The truth is that they all are, especially when the singer writes the songs and produces the record as well. The album we're about to hear was the artist's fifth, and it certainly wasn't easy. The year is 1985, and our classic album is The Hounds of Love.
Looking back with me for the next hour is Kate Bush. I think it was probably the most difficult stage I've been at so far. Because the, the Dreaming, the album before, I'd never produced an album before that one, and because it had a lot of um, unfavourable attention from some people, I think it was felt that me producing Hounds of Love wasn't such a good idea. And for the first time, I felt I was actually meeting resistance artistically. I felt the album had done very well to reach number three, but uh, I felt under a lot of pressure, and I wanted to stay as close to my work as possible. And uh, everyone was saying, oh, she's really gone mad now. You know, hey, listen to this. <laughs> it's a really weird record. But it, it was very important that it happened to me because it made me think, right, do I really want to produce my own stuff? You know, do I really care about being famous? And I was very pleased with myself that, no, it didn't matter as much as making a good album. So we started Hands of Love in our own studio and I started to find out an awful lot of things that I wouldn't have realised otherwise. Um, I relaxed tremendously within my own environment for a start. And also on the dreaming, uh, because I was working in such an experimental way, uh, the studio costs were becoming absolutely phenomenal and I really don't think I could have afforded to have made Hounds of Love in a commercial setup. So um, here I was in a situation of having as much creative control really as I could ever ask for. I had an idea of what I wanted to say in the song and I actually asked Del to write me a drum pattern and um, he wrote this great pattern in uh, the drum machine. So I just put the fair light on top of it and um, that was the basis of the song with the drone which uh, played quite an important part. So where do we want to start talking about this song? <laughs> I The thing is, I don't even know. Like, it's... Like, I thought the only, like, good beginning would be the synth sound at the beginning, but I'm not even sure. Well, um, I guess we could start with the story behind the song. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so the story behind this huge hit song that we'll get to, we'll talk about, like, the chart performance and about the fact that this is the only top 40 hit that Kate Bush has ever had in the United in America. States. America. Yeah, but, of course, it was a huge hit everywhere else because that's the way things go. This was actually the first song written for Hounds of Love, and it was supposedly yes. written in one evening in the summer of 1983. So after she had already done the dreaming and done all of the promos for it, she started immediately working on this song. And it started with the electronic drums, which were programmed by her boyfriend, Del Palmer. And the Fairlight part were also present from the first recording of the song. And when she first played the very first version of this song for one of her engineers, Paul Hardiman, was on October 6, 1983. And he commented later that the first time I heard Running Up That Hill, it wasn't a demo. It was a working start. We carried on working on Kate and Dell's original. Kate had... Or Dell had programmed the Lynn drum part, the basis of which we kept. I know we spent time working on the Fairlight Melody hook, but the idea was there, plus guide vocals. And then the track was later worked on about a month later with drums that were closely following the programmed pattern. Um, Alan Murphy added guitar parts, and Patty, of course, providing the really cool instruments. He plays a Russian guitar called a balalaika. 
So this was written pretty, this was the first song written for Hounds of Love after the dreaming and everything. And they just, they worked on it and it finally got released two years later. And I mean, I I think why the song is, um, I I think that the song is the um, start of her mature music. I mean, everything before the song is amazing. It is groundbreaking. But this is after the um, critical um, mess um, of the dreaming and the um, what what I'm trying to say is that I, I, I think this is a breakthrough song in her career. How so? Well, she's I, ever since um, Wuthering Heights, um, she's had breakthrough song after breakthrough song. I mean, um, but I think this is a threshold point in her um, in her musical career mm-hmm. because um, after this point, you have she has um, finally got complete control over her creative process. Mm-hmm. Um, EMI is not trying to. Um, curate her um, look and how she's marketed. She is in control of her um, her her look, her what her music sounds like, what it's about. And after this, everyone um, has their attention on Kate Bush. It's no longer music for. Um, I mean, um, niche kind of people. It, 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 I mean. There must be reason it reached the top forty in America. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is such a complicated song. It is, and and yet, like production-wise, it's so simple. You get the drums, you get so bass, you get the guitar, you got a balalaika, you get the Fairlight. It makes it very dreamy, which I really like. And yeah, I mean, on this song. I think what another like it's I will say it's not no longer an absolute favorite. It used to be number one for me. It was also number one in my iTunes library. I think at some point when I was playing this in college in the mid 2000s that it was I think at almost 100 plays, which is a lot for me because I have a huge music library. And so if something I think in order to get into my top 25 in iTunes, you have to play the song like 70 times, which is a lot for me. It is no longer an absolute favorite, but when I ranked all my favorite songs from Kate, this one is number seven. So it is in my top 10. And it's just that I've connected with other songs of hers as I got more into her discography, but it stays with me. It's part of it is the beat. And honestly, I can see why hip hop people like her, especially like Big Boy from Outkast. Like he's always going on about this song and the beat and the emotion in it. And I can see why, because that beat, it is insistent. It is prominent in the song. Like this song was built around the beat. And that's, I mean, that's something that people do a lot of nowadays where you start with the beat and then you put the, the painted in with the chords and, and the melody. So I like the beat, the BVs. I love singing along with the background vocals. That he, those EOs, I just love singing along with it. I'm like, yeah. I, I like 
turn it up. I roll the windows down. I'm blasting it in you know, Hampton Roads, Virginia here. And like, especially at a stoplight, I like blasting this. And somebody next to me is play- blaring their hip hop music. And I'm playing this. Like, um, it complements hip hop. It yeah. really does. Um, like I said, I can see why hip hop people like her. I really, I, you would think it would be like, whoa, like why would they like, no, it's, it's all driven by the beat and that's what hip hop is. Um, definitely. There is a beat, the backbone of the song is a well composed beat. And, um, I mean, I didn't really get into hip hop until my senior year of high school and, um, my first love of hip hop has and is still Outkast. Mm-hmm. I love Outkast, and I can see many parallels between music K Push and um, its impact on Outkast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is really entertaining watching Big Boy go on about the song. Have you seen the Pitchfork um, video where he's dissecting? the lyrics and then he's just like singing along to the beat yes i have in fact i'm gonna be playing this here to, here's a clip for you guys to listen to right now if you haven't heard it and also a link to it in the show notes my top two artists of all time when i start really loving music is kate bush bob marley i call it my one a my one b and two would be nwa so yeah that's where my musical tastes lie because my dad was listening to run dmc and uh, Houdini and my grandmother was listening to Bob Marley and Patti LaBelle and um, Uncle Russ was listening to uh, The Doors and Kate Bush and Guns N' Roses and Sting, you know what I mean? And it was just like, I loved all music and he was just turning me on to something that was just brand new. I mean, I, I love the production first and foremost, I mean, because it kind of set a tone and then the way she was uh, singing the songs her voice was just angelic. I was like, hadn't heard nobody do it like that. It was just so weird, you know what I mean? The sounds and, and what she was talking about, it was just kind of crazy, you know what I mean? And then he's like, you know, she produced all this stuff too. So I was like, oh man. I just always thought of her like, as like Phantom of the Opera kind of, somewhere living in this big castle with a piano that was 10 times the size of a, a, a regular piano, just kind of just playing the piano all day with sheer curtains blowing in the window. Like she's like almost like Rapunzel, but on the top of a hill somewhere, just in a, on a castle, just desolate, playing the piano and wailing. I, I thought it was cool. Yeah, it's my favorite part, let's do it. For one, it was good to pedal to, you know. Um, it made you go fast. I just liked it, you know, when the drums come on, it just, it's, it was like one of those, like a workout song, you know what I'm saying? So I had to ride like, it had to be like 20 to 30 blocks to school, you know what I mean? So I would just listen to it and just just ride. And it was, it was just good, you know what I mean? It was, it was kind of adventurous. And then the hook comes in and just make you pedal faster. And, you know, by the time I got to school, I, uh, probably sweating like I just got out of PE class. I think her songs tell stories, and we also tell stories. Sometimes there's a double meaning in what she says, and the layers of production, how the songs morph, they might start one way, and then they morph and break down into something. is is very theatrical, in a sense, to 
you can kind of envision it in your head, like, you know what I mean, where you can kind of envision your own world of what an outcast song is. Her songs did that for me. Like, it would just be so dramatic, like the different turns it would take. Like, it made the music exciting because it wasn't just uh, repetitive. You didn't know what was coming around the corner and when that song ended, you didn't know if it was going into another song or if that was like a B or C section to that one particular song. It was just, you know, one cohesive body of work that took you on an adventure. Yeah, I've seen that, and it's so fun. Like, oh, I love that he loves that song. Oh, my goodness. He also loves owls. He's just a cool dude. I think this is a song that um, can be very important to people, but it's also a song that you grow out of. You'll always have a love for the song, but, I mean, there's a reason why it's not my favorite Kate Bush song anymore. It's a great start. It's, yeah. It's like... There's a light that never goes out. You look back on that song and like, oh, I was the awkward high schooler. That's mm-hmm. kind of a cheesy song now. Um, but I will always have a love for the song. This song starts with like, it sounds like it's a synth warming up. Like, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's like the, I don't, what is it? You know, the beginning of the song with a, um, this like subtle, um, almost synth sound. Yeah, it actually is a synthesizer. So, so the production on this song and especially that, that drone that starts, that drone is indeed a synthesizer. In fact, it is a patch from the Fairlight. In fact, there's actually okay. a quote from, from Kate where she mentions using the Fairlight, and that was what she wrote the song around. The, there is a patch called Cello 2, and it's just it's a cello, it's a sample cello doing one note, and it's supposedly really short. That cello sound is actually the basis for three of the mi- big components of the song, which are okay. the drone. That wow, wow, wow. And also the whoa, whoa, whoa. It doesn't hurt me. Do you want to feel how it feels? That one sound was was used for all three of those parts. And those, including the drums, 
are some of the most distinctive parts of this song. And like you said, like you hear this song, you hear those parts and you know immediately what song this is. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a patch in the Fairlight that's called Cello 2. And it's just a sampled simple cello note. That cello sound is the basis for the drone, the hook, okay. and the chords that randomly play. So the way that she did the um, the drone is really interesting because with the Fairlight, it can it had a very limited memory and storage. So the only way that you could make a long sustained sound would be to loop short sections of a sample. And that's tricky to do. And I know this from my own music production that you end up getting a clicking effect if you try to loop something that's not really meant to be looped. So according to ReverbMateMachine.com, what it sounds like she did to get that effect of making it um, loop, even though it kind of wasn't she put a long reverb effect on it and of course reverb like if you've ever been in like an empty parking garage or someplace really empty and you try and say something you're like hello 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 that's reverb and when you're recording music you can do different effects and including reverb and usually like if you put reverb on something it makes it sound bigger and fuller than it actually is and um, according to this, it says, quote, instead, it sounds like Kate has run the sound through a long reverb effect and fed a portion of the reverb tail. So, the, you know, that, that would be the reverb tail, feeding that back into the sampler. And that's how that's probably I mean, she's never gone like super in depth with like her production tricks. But that's they say that that's probably how Kate got this one sound and made it sound longer than it actually was then the that hook them that again was from the same sound and the person who wrote this article said quote i think kate programmed the pitch bend which she did she did a pitch bend that's why it sounds like it's kind of scooping into like instead of um Quote, I think Kate programmed the pitch bend, then resampled the cello note with pitch bend back into the fairlight, which is why the scoop time is shorter for higher notes and longer for lower notes. So that's what she did. Oh, wait, sorry. That's for the, the chords. It was the chords that she did that on. And then a similar thing was used on the lead track. Quote, an interesting technique used here is that the delay effect on the track is louder for the higher notes, but quieter and less noticeable for the lower notes. You can achieve this effect by automating either the mix level or the input level for the delay effect. So she took this one little sample and manipulated it in these three very different ways to get these very interesting sounds that honestly really make the song stand out and make it go oh yeah i hear this and i know it's running up that hill and a great thing to talk about is um i remember watching documentaries about um this album and and kate bush um when i started getting into her and what struck me was that um, one of her first um requests in composing the album was to um stop her um, musicians from using um, symbols, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that has such an impact on 
not just the song, but the whole album. Because yeah. if there were symbols, it would make it would make the song seem less urgent, less serious. It, there's a reason why this really stands out. It is, um, I mean, I remember um, in the 2014 documentary, um, the musician Saint Vincent was um, talking about um, this album, and it was, she said something like, um, "It's like." a blast of fire, warm air through a really cold hallway or, or, or um, something like that. Like, it's, it's very intense. It's very um, strong. Mm-hmm. I think symbols would have, um, would, would have made it the opposite. Definitely. And that's something that I know she worked on a lot with um, Peter Gabriel. Because um, Peter Gabriel yeah. at this time, I mean... I know you're you're into his music, and I'm slowly getting into stuff. And so, like on the albums that she worked with him on, like like um, Melt and um, Security, which came out like the week after it was right around the time of the Dreaming, that he didn't use any symbols because he wanted to, he didn't want that splash of stuff. And so, within the drums, um, there's actually I'm going to link to this in the show notes. So other like music nerdy types listening to this. It's reverbmachine.com slash blog slash Kate hyphen Bush hyphen synth hyphen sounds. They actually break down a couple of her songs, especially running up that hill. And so the Lynn drum pattern, so the Lynn drum machine was very common in the 80s. I think of the Lynn drum machine as like early Kylie Minogue and Stock Aiken and Waterman, a lot of those um, kind of songs. They use this particular drum machine so that you could get like a more precise drum beat then you could get with a live drummer who might be inclined to go behind the beat a little bit so with the lind drum pattern they actually break it down and there's the only sounds on the drums are the kicks that dun 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 and then you get a snare and actually the snare is slightly before the beat and the same with the kick on the that part is a little one of those kicks is a little bit behind the beat so you get that like distinctive yeah it's just a snare and a kick there are no there's no hi-hat there's no rim there's no cymbal it's just the kick and the snare and it gives it a very tribal sort of feel which you know, considering her love of all things Celtic, given her background, doesn't surprise me. On Hounds of Love, a lot of the songs are dance songs, and the single is a hit on the dance charts. Your first in America, was that premeditated? Did you aim for that? No, I don't think you ever actually aim for any particular market as such. Well, I certainly don't when I'm writing a song. You just write a song because you're trying to say something or you've got a nice musical idea and you write the song for the song's sake, not really in order to conquer the world. Uh Uh-huh. Were you influenced by any dance hits, though? Any other dance songs? No. No? I don't think so, no. I don't listen to very much contemporary music. Um, I think this album is... uh, is dealing with me being much more influenced and excited by rhythm, particularly consistent rhythm. And I think as soon as you've got consistency of rhythm, you're talking about things that are accessible to dancing to. And so as soon as it's danceable, people can relate to it. 
So this was Running Up That Hill was the first single released for Hounds of Love, like we've kind of talked about. And it did really well pretty much everywhere it was released, even the United States, which is amazing because, yeah, <laughs> she's never been huge here. Although it's worth noting that most of the people I've talked to on this podcast have been American. So anybody who says yeah. she's not popular in America, hey, guys, no, 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 we exist. Hello, your host is American, like right here. I think she does have a um, um, a deep following, a deep base in, in America. I think, um, I think the people who... Um, the American fans of Kate Bush who like her have um, very similar stories of um, discovering and um, getting into her music because it is, it's, it's like this, um, oh God, it, it's like this, you have to, to dig deep and you have to, um, to look hard, but, um, I don't know. I don't know where I was going to with that. But, um... I mean, it... it um, I think for, for, for Kate and kind of with the song that when I read about where it was, how it got played in the United States, most of where this song got played was on college radio which at the time would have been, would have played your more underground music, the things that weren't, you know, top 40 or whatever, weren't, you know, Hall & Oates or Pat Benatar or something Madonna. like that. Or Madonna. Um, what I found really interesting, is it, is it Britain where um, the, the album um, knocked um, Like a Virgin down in um, the top 10 for a couple weeks? Ooh, I'm not sure. You mean the album or the single? The album. The album. Ooh, let's see. I I read this, and I um, I mean, I I always like um thinking about that. Nothing against like um like a virgin. Also, I mean, I'm not a huge Madonna fan, but it's always um something fun to listen to. Mm-hmm. I've actually, I've heard um, people compare Love and Anger to Madonna's music. And, um, but that's not another episode for another day. Yeah, yeah, we won't go there. Um, but this yeah. did do well everywhere it was released. It went to number six in Australia. 21 number 21 in austria number six in belgium the french loved it they brought it to number 24 germany went to number three four in ireland 31 in italy six in the netherlands 26 in new zealand switzerland 10 us was made it to number 30 and the uk it went to number three it's worth noting for me at least because i'm a nerd about birthday stuff that it entered the charts on the week of August 11th to 17th, 1985 at number nine. And that was the week my husband was born. And this happens to be like, he's like, I'll put this one on or the title track, Hounds of Love, and he loves it. He's like bopping his head. He's like, yeah, running up my hill, running up that hill is probably my favorite Kate Bush song. So I just find that's a cool connection. Like, oh, hey, 
hey. I even told that to my to my husband, like, hey, honey, running up the hill, enter the charts the week you were born. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good um that is a lovely coincidence. <laughs> I mean my birthday happens to be the ice of March, so <laughs> And let's see. Yeah, and it's also like I just imagining a time where this the song was all over top forty radio, where you know you could listen to something, you'd hear "White Wedding" by Billy Idol, and then maybe this song would come after it, or "We Don't Need Another Hero" Tina Turner, and then you'd hear "Running Up the Hill." Just it's just so unique. Like when I look at the other songs that were on the charts, at least the UK charts. We're talking about the UK charts. It's this just this stands out, and she her Kate Bush's music always stands out when it's on the charts because you you look at the other things around it and you're like, yeah, this is different. <laughs> well, um, what songs were also charting? Let's see. The week that it was entered the charts at number nine, there was into the into the groove by Madonna was number one. Holiday okay. was number two. We had UB40 with I Got You Babe at number three. Number four, We Don't Need Another Hero, which I know was another was a hit in the U.S. at that time as well. Money for Nothing and Your Chicks for Free. Uh, yeah. there, there Must Be an Angel Playing With My Heart, Eurythmics, White Wedding, Billy Idol, Drive by the Cars. Oh, one of my favorite 80 songs. Uh, Running Up That Hill at number nine. And Don Quixote by Nick Kershaw. I'm not familiar with that one. And I don't think Nick Kershaw ever really hit it here in the U.S. I don't think he really did. The performance that comes to mind when I think about the drums is, um, I believe, is it Amnesty International, where um, she she's doing the song with Dave Gilmore, mm-hmm. and um, that's where it's very prominent. I I mean, um, I don't know if it's a, if this is an unpopular opinion or anything, but I kind of prefer that um, version to the studio version. I mean, both okay. have a great. Um, a very special place in my um, heart, but um, that live version, everything comes into play. It seems so lively, and it seems, if it's possible, even more urgent. Hmm. I could see that. It it also has more of a live band sort of feel to it, whereas the studio version she was able to make sounds that you can't really that might be a little harder to replicate live unless yeah like Depeche Mode at this time I know they were they used a lot of um they used a lot of tapes to get other sounds that you can't do live so she could have done that but it, it it does have more of a live band feel to it and it's actually in a different key so the original is in C minor which has three flats yeah, B flat, E flat, and A flat. And this one, I when I listened to it yesterday, I noticed it sounded a little bit higher. That's because they moved it up to D minor, which admittedly is easier to play with other musicians who play guitar because you only have one flat to deal with. You only have B flat. But I thought that was interesting that it was moved up a step to D minor. And so that's why it sounds a little bit, I think that's like, it makes it sound a little bit brighter too.
What are your thoughts on the um, the Before the Dawn version? Now, the Before the Dawn version is, again, it's transposed. And yeah. it is, I noticed it's down to B minor. So we've gone down a step, which admittedly her voice has gotten older. So, of course, you move it down a little bit if you need to. And I like it because it's one of the only two times that Kate has ever actually performed this song with live vocals, whereas all the other yeah. versions that she did on TV, I mean, I'm watching them yesterday, and honestly, they kind of ran together for me after a while because they're all lip synced. It's <laughs> all the... Um, did, she, did she do any um, TV performances that weren't lip synced? No, she didn't. Because it seemed um, like, like um, sometimes I'll take the, the task upon myself to go over the comments <laughs> just because <laughs> of curiosity. Um, yes, I have gone to Helm back many, many times. Um, no, but, um, and I, I've come across people talking about how it's, it's synced, lip synced and everything. And, um, like, there's no, there's no TV performance. Um, of any of her songs that are actually sang, not of any, not of anything from the dreaming on. Um, I know. Not even you're the one, or I mean, and so is love. Like, yeah. No, that's lip synced. Huh. Yeah, I know. Although there, there was one performance from the Hounds of Love era that was shown on TV, that was sung live, and that was her performing under the ivy at the piano. And obviously, that was oh. like she played, she played piano and sang that it live. Oh, I know. Oh God, I cannot wait to get to that song because that's another top ten. <gasps> Spoiler alert. Um, oh, no, none that's, of... one my, that's one of my favorites.
just um, a video of it in HD and high definition was finally released on mm-hmm. the official Facebook YouTube like last week or the week before. Oh my god. Um, I'm so excited for the B-Sides album. And the B-Sides and, and the demos and Under the Ivy is very, very good. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's one of my absolute favorites. Always has been. Oh my god. And <laughs> worth noting that that was the B-Side for Running Up That Hill. And they together. Yeah, and I like I like that the A side you get this very production heavy song like Running Up That Hill and then the B side is something so simple which I know is something that Kate has done before like say Sat in Your Lap paired with The Lord of the Reedy River, you know? Yeah, but um I haven't heard Lord of the Reedy River in a long time. Is it as good as Under the Ivy? It's, I like Under the Ivy better because it's got the piano in it. Lord of the Reedy River is good. It's, it's to me, Lord of the Reedy River is a good cover. It's a good example of somebody taking a song and really making it her own, which I always appreciate. And artists, I don't like it when they just do straight karaoke versions because that bores the hell out of me. But I like Under the Ivy better, personally. Yeah. Because it's one of her songs, whereas Lord of the Reedy River was a Donovan song, so it was a cover. Now, one other thing that I wanted to add here, when this was recorded in April of 2019, there was a live performance of Running Up the Hill that I had neglected to mention And I probably forgot about it because Kate herself did not perform this song. Instead, it was a re-recorded vocal over a lower version of Running Up That Hill used in the closing ceremony for the London 2012 Olympic Games. I watched the British feed because I heard that, oh, Kate Bush might be doing something for the show. We don't know because everything is, we all know, everything is speculation with Kate Bush. And so I watched the British feed and got to see the routine that they did to the song. It was kind of you taking a little bit out of context, if we're being a little bit honest, because we're going to get, because we're going to get into talking about the theme of the song. But I can only imagine that, wow, it must have been really something to be there in the Olympic Stadium and hearing those thundering drums coming through. And, oh, hey, yay, we've got a Kate Bush song playing for mass audiences. It's only too bad, though, that this got cut out of the American feed. And that's part of why I wanted to watch the British Parade. So here we are. I'm just going to play a real quick clip of the 2012 version of Running Up That Hill with the re-recorded vocal from Kate Bush that was used in the London Olympics.
say that really a man and a woman can't understand each other because we are a man and a woman and if we could actually swap each other's roles if we could actually be in each other's place for a while i think um we'd both be very surprised and i think it would lead to a greater understanding and uh, really the only way i could think it could be done was either you know i thought a deal with the devil you know and i thought well no why not a deal with god you know because uh, in a way it's so much more powerful the whole idea of asking god to make a deal with you you see for me it is still called deal with god that was the, its title but we were told that um, if we kept this title that it wouldn't be played in any of the religious countries so italy wouldn't play it france wouldn't play it um, australia wouldn't play it ireland wouldn't play it uh, and that generally we might get it blacked purely because it had God in the title. Now, I couldn't believe this. This seemed completely ridiculous to me. And the title was such a part of the song's entity. Um, I just couldn't understand it. But nonetheless, although I was very unhappy about it, I felt unless I compromised that I was going to be um, cutting my own throat, you know. I just spent two, three years making an album and we weren't going to get this record played on the radio if I was stubborn. So I thought I had to be grown up about this, so we changed it to Running so, Up That Hill. What but it's always something I, I regret like, doing, so I must say. And normally I always regret any compromises that I make. But do you have any favorite lyrics from this album, or from this song? Because I know I do. I do. Um, I must say that there's a lot of... Um, minor details in the song lyric wise or vocal wise that i absolutely love and it it feels like it's very calculated um i must say that and this kind of goes with charting that you know there's the whole story of um kate initially wanting to call the song a deal with god mm -hmm. and um that she was getting um, um, negative feedback about, oh, the song won't chart, the album won't do well in countries like France or Italy because of the Catholic background. Um, and I think that um, even though it wasn't her first choice, I think naming the song Running Up That Hill instead, with the parentheses, of course, um, makes the song... It's another reason why the song is so strong, because it um, there's this weird balance in the song of you have everything, everything is laid back and, and minimal and um, presented to you, and um, the fact that, no, it's not, this song is so complex here try to try to um dare to try to dissect it i mean running up that hill running up that building we were talking about it earlier um they're like obstacles it's kind of it doesn't seem like the first um approach to writing a song about a, a topic like this to um to be saying oh if only i could be running up hills, be running up buildings, but it, 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 it it's what makes the song so impactful, I think. Mm -hmm. um, 
um, starting to get um, raspy voice. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I do. I do love. Um, you don't want to hurt me, but see how deep the bolt lies. Mm-hmm. Unaware, I'm tearing you asunder. Ooh, there's thunder in our hearts. Is there so much hate for the ones we love? Tell me, we both matter, don't we, eh? You, it's you and me. It's you and me and won't be unhappy. That is amazing thing to be hearing at age 15, 16, 17. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's eye-opening. I mean, um, I think this is a landmark song. I don't know if if that's over exaggerating, but there's just there's something about this song that makes you want to go back and back and back to it, and it's just it's the mysteriousness of the lyrics. It's the um, there seems to be this immense care and tenderness that she's put into this. Yeah, and it makes it so admirable and attractive, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Oh, it does. Like you just, it it feels urgent, but like you were saying, tender at the same time because she's like, you know, I want to figure out like what's her, like what did what did I do? How am I hurting you? But then there's also, hey, I want to understand where you're coming from, and yeah. Oh my, I love those, those lyrics you cited, that whole, like, you don't want to hurt me through, it's you and me won't be unhappy. I love those. I get this sense of, like, somebody that you got a man and a woman in it, because she's talked about, like, when she's talked about this song, that it's, it's about the power of love, and, but not the power of love in the Jennifer Rush slash Celine Dion slash Laura Brannigan sense, that you get these, this man and a woman, or I could like you could be any relationship, whether it's two women or maybe two men, that they're they're trying they're they're maybe you're you're saying you're trying to express yourself to the other person and you're not trying to be hurtful, but you are anyway. And then you in turn like you're trying to help, but you're making a wrong step and you're just you're trying to figure out each other and like, I understand that so much as I've gotten older and and that those lines have resonated for me because like even just in friendships, not necessarily romantic relationships, but even just relationships in general that I have as I've gotten older, I've had this great desire to try and understand people and where they're coming from and other points of view, even if I don't necessarily agree with them. And I feel like, you know, there are times where I'm trying to trying to get through the other person and instead I'm just like hurting myself and stepping on my own toes. And it's just, yeah, you don't want to hurt me, but see how deep the bullet lies. You, you're trying not to, you're trying not to harm me with your words, but, oh, wait a minute it really cut through deep into me what you said or what you did. And then meanwhile, Um, oh yeah, I'm trying to do the same thing, but oh wait, instead I'm just tearing you apart. And also I love that she used a sunder. I mean, God, who uses a sunder in a top 40 song, man? You don't want to hurt me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See how deep the wood lies. 
she has um, this great power to just to hide, to sneak in, just poetic um, verses and, and topics and, and references into chart-topping hits. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just admirable. Um, and yet at the same time, you get the later on in the bridge, you know, she says, oh, come on, baby, come on, darling. And that feels very not Intimate. formal. Yeah, it's this yeah. neat mixture of a word like asunder, and then she uses baby. <laughs> so baby. I think another reason why it resonates so, um, so much to people starting to get into her music is that because it's intimate, it feels like um, it's a song just for that person. It feels like it's it's something um, that they um, were meant to hear all along, doesn't it? I think so. Mm-hmm. And it it also like sums up the song too. It does. Yeah, let's exchange the experience. Oh, those drums when they kick in, they're. It feels like things are falling apart, doesn't it? It does. Like we kind of like gotten to a head and maybe in in an argument or something like that. I really, I really think because of the lyrics that the song is this threshold in how songs dealing with love or um, breakup or loss um, are made after. Like, I think a lot of songs, like, before the song, there are a lot of songs about love and there's a lot of songs about loss and breakup. And this song um, deals with topics, both topics, but it's not... A sense of love song, and it's not sense of like, oh, I'm mad with you, or we we're not in love anymore. This is like, this is a song about someone's like, hey, I love you so much, but we can't see from each other's perspectives. We can't. It's it's tearing us apart. If only I could. I I mean, I I would I would go to these lengths to to fix this. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't want to lose. Be- lose this but it is falling apart and we need to we need to um look at this afresh and 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 i think songs after this um are kind of different and also it's worth noting too that within this song that yeah it's about a relationship but it's complex it's not it's not the usual black and white oh you done me wrong and now i'm gonna blame you or something like that. Like instead, it's putting the blame on both people. Where you know the other person, the person that she's a talking to, the you, is hurting her, but then also she is too. Where she says, "Unaware, I'm tearing you asunder." So it's oh, it's on both sides. It's not a one-sided kind of thing. Which it, and it just it goes deeper than just oh, I love you, baby. <laughs> which I wouldn't expect yeah. from Kate Bush anyway, but. I think that's another reason why running up that hill resonates with so many people too, is that it's, it's deeper than a love song. It, it's, it is a love song in the sense that it's 
about a re- about a relationship, but it's it's deeper than yeah usual stuff. That said, how do you feel about covers of, of the song? Well, who because has not covered this song? Oh my god! <laughs> there are bad covers of the song. Uh, there, there are good covers. Are. Um, um, but there is this one glaring cover that makes me that makes my blood boil, and people like it. And I oh boy. there I, are some people that like it more than this song, and that is placebo. I thought you were gonna mention them. Oh God, I do not like that because I have my own thoughts of emo and pop punk music. Um. I know I was the right age at the right time for it, but I never had an emo phase. And, Me either. And to, I mean, <laughs> there, there was Kate Bush put so much care and 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 intricate planning into this song, and to hear it translated into the emo lens, where it 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 just feels it feels too much. It feels it feels insincere it feels like like the opposite of what you you can gleam out of the original version So we've been talking for like an hour here and we haven't even talked about the video. So what are your thoughts on the video? I love the video. Yes. So this is my favorite Kate Bush video. Yes. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite. I love every, every video from the Hounds of Love is on my favorite. Um, not just my favorite Kate Bush music video list, but my favorite music video list. Um, and this is one of them, and it is amazing, and it adds, it adds more complexity to the song, if that's Oh, possible. I know. Yeah. Because one thing that, and I feel like you would know the answer. I don't know why, but um, there's the um, archery motifs in the song and in the um single art and then the Wogan performance. Mm-hmm. I don't know why um, it has to do with the song, but it adds way more complexity. 
Yeah, and actually I was looking into the archery part because that part always puzzled me as to, okay, what is with the archery? There's actually a reason for that. Yeah, this was actually from one of the Kate Bush conventions uh, when they were interviewing uh, Patty and Jay and asking questions. Uh, somebody asked, how did the sleeve for running up that hill, the running up that hill come to be archery themed? And uh, Patty says, the archery, archery is something that we've been interested in for many years. It symbolizes the very basic learning processes. You aim an arrow at a target and you let it go and it flies toward the target. It misses the middle and it moves a little bit to the left or a little bit low. Then you know that the next arrow you're going to shoot has to be a little bit to the right and a little bit higher. And then Jay adds, I think there's some levels of archery, which now in terms of a simple fact, you can see archery as with the left hand holding the bow is the future and the right hand is pulling this way. It's going backwards as the past and you're the present. You could see it as the left hand is the passive thing, the female and the right hand is the male. And it's obviously, and this part was inaudible. And there are a lot of esoteric levels, but I'm sure they're not very interesting. Perhaps they threaten to get it into the kind of fades off there. So this it's the symbol. I had never really understood why the archery theme, but I can kind of get what her brothers were, were talking about. And like, I kind of, for me, I almost kind of add another level that it's maybe you're, you're aiming your words like an arrow. You're, you're hoping to like, that it gets to the right place that it'll get in the way that it should. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but it makes sense in my head. <laughs> It makes sense. Um, and I also, what came to mind is like heroes and the whole mythological component. And I mean, this song um, has a very mythological composition lyrically. Mm -hmm. And I kind of made the connections there. Um, this, is, this is like a parable. This is like a story to learn from. Um, but I love the music video. I love the dancing. Yes. The dancing is, what I find interesting is that the dancing is not like the kind of dancing you saw in music videos at that time, like a Michael Jackson or a Madonna. Like this felt very, it felt very modern and interpretive. And in watching the video yesterday, as I was doing my finishing my notes for this song and, and thinking more about the theme of the song and the lyrics that I feel like it acts out. I think part of what like really draws me to the music video is the way it feels like it's acting out this, like kind of this push and pull of this relationship between this man and this yeah. woman. It's like hammer horror. It's like the, it's like in the hammer horror video where like she, in that one, she's acting out like being taken over by the spirit. And in this one, it's, you're acting out this tumultuous relationship. Yeah. And like the, the, the struggle in the dancing, the, there's this obvious sense that it's, the dancing is not just, for aesthetics, it's very, it could be seen as very strenuous, as very push and pull. Mm -hmm. And it, it shows this, um, the dynamics of a relationship. It's very, it's not just um, an attractive dance. It's a dance that you can see the physical, them pushing them themselves, carrying each other. 
throwing mm-hmm. each other, um, trying to balance with each other. Um, but who is the guy? The dancer, um, this is from a quote or interview, she was talking about this. Um, the dancer was a guy called Michael Hervier. I'm going to pre- it looks French. So I'm saying Hervier. Michael Hervier, quote, who we auditioned. Uh, she says, we wanted to do a piece, a serious piece of dance. Over the last couple of years, all the videos I've seen, dance has become a very exploited thing and hasn't really been treated seriously. It's been used to sort of be accessories, makes broad motion with hands, around the person who's starring in the film. And we thought it would be nice to do almost a classical piece of dance, filmed as well as possible, because it's very rarely filmed well now. In fact, the only well-filmed piece of dance I think I've ever seen was Twilla Tharp's Catherine Wheel. And I think that's because she was so involved in it that it was so good. So that's what we wanted to do. A nice, serious piece of dance, simple, well-filmed, and give dance a chance in a real way in this pop world. Oh, the masks. What do you think of the masks at the end? Because there's the dancing I and then love, there's the masks. at the, What do you think of that? I love the mask. Um, I have a couple theories on the masks. Um, one, it um, as the video was something that cemented, helped cement my interest in her music, I think the masks are a reason behind that. It's very eye-catching and very, like, wow, I think this artist has something that I need to find. Um, something that I sh- shouldn't be uh, knowledgeable of. The masks, um, I think it goes with, um, trying to um, trying to watch um, to switch places it's trying to as hard as you try to learn um, more of a, their perspective there's this feeling that you can't successfully do it it will only be a facade of what they actually feel and what they actually see. It's it's not, um, you never see the faces kind of more. There's the masks and then there's the scene at the end where the camera kind of pans to him doing the archery pose, then to her, and then moves around back to him, and back to her, and the last frame is Kate just staring at the camera with the archery sign, trying to um, and now the archery makes very much more sense. But um, I think the, that scene in the masks um, all tie into um, trying to do things right and trying to fix the relationship by trying to um, figure out the psychology of your partner. Mm-hmm. So, but the reason why I asked who the dancer was was because um, he wasn't just like um, the two dancers in the early music videos and uh, tour of life. Uh, he seemed prominent, like the mask. In fact, it was just her and him. It just seemed like he had this problem. It's like Hounds of Love, like where you're, um, that music video where you're um, made to believe that the other guy is um, very prominent and that he was an um, actor in real life. And um, so I thought it was similar to that music video. I love the aesthetics and the color palette a lot. 
the mm-hmm. the purple, the lavender, um, the the foggy whites, and um, when you start to um, take into account um, that this is the first single and um, the first track, it creates a aesthetic for the whole album, and I think. She was really good at packaging this album, really good at advertising and marketing, not in like a, a over-the-top typical way, but in a subtle like way. And it makes it so that the album, the album's aesthetics and the album's content, it never ages. It feels like there's always going to be something about it that seems human and seems um, deep and always relevant. on running up that hill before we go um i think we pretty much covered everything really yeah did we need to talk about tv performance like like performances or um we kind of already did actually yeah mm-hmm. except the 2012 version but yeah yeah i will say this well, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about running up that hill. It's been great to talk to you as always and Thanks. look forward to having you on the show again. Yes. I look forward to being back. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. Okay, I think I'm done running for now. Well, uh, wait a minute. We've got more running to do because guess what? Next week, we're going to be running from the Hounds of Love. I tell you, I'm going to be real tired by the time this first side is done. Anyway, so join us next week for a discussion of the title track from Hounds of Love, where we get to talk about more about Before the Dawn. We get to talk about the Before the Dawn version. We get to talk about the alternative version. And we also get to talk about the music video and everything to do with this song. So join us next week for that. And we'll see everybody then.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.